The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My guest this morning is Dr. Paul Ruggieri. He's the author of The Cost of Cutting, A Surgeon Reveals the Truth Behind a Multi-Billion Dollar Industry. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ruggieri. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Well, it's great to have you on the show this morning. Uh, we're going to be talking about, obviously, about your book. Uh, apparent, and this is a, a really important topic. It's very timely uh, because we are obviously having a lot of problems with the healthcare system, and it's estimated that uh, surgeries cost the U.S. healthcare system over a hundred and fifty billion dollars a year. Uh, so obviously this is something that you talk about and cover in your book and the reasons for it. So, uh, you are a practicing general surgeon yourself, besides being a writer, husband, stepfather, and as you say, a lover of single malt whiskey. So am I. Anyway. Right. Uh, <laughs> We're going to talk uh, about that later. <laughs> we can talk about that later. First, we have to talk about the cost of surgery in the United States. And I, uh, you know, I knew I was going to interview to you today, and I think it was a couple weeks ago. You probably saw this in the New York Times. They did a whole article. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, talking about how the cost of surgery and why it's so costly. And so maybe we can cover some of the, uh, you know, what they talked about in the Times as well. But anyway, your book, uh, The Cost of Cutting. Why are we spending $150 billion a year on surgeries that, according to you, we don't necessarily need? Well, that's a good question, Catherine, because uh, surgery is expensive for a variety of reasons. And when there's unnecessary surgery, it just adds not only financial costs to the health system, but physical and emotional pain to patients who don't necessarily need an operation. And if there's a complication, God forbid, that's even worse. Uh, but there are a lot of reasons why there's unnecessary surgery being done in this country. Uh, one is, for instance, we're doing a lot of surgery at the end of life. About a third of Medicare patients undergo a procedure and operation in the last year of life. And it's just about half of those, it happens in the last month of life. Uh, so we're doing really, that's one reason why we're doing a lot of surgery on elderly, sick patients whose quality of life afterwards, if they make it, is very poor. Another reason why we're doing unnecessary surgery is that some surgeons, unfortunately, in my profession, it's not a big problem, but it's a problem that operate for profit. They do operations because they get paid, and if they're fee-for-service reimbursement, system in our country, which we've had for decades, is propagating that, I believe, and that needs to be changed, and it, and it will be changed. Um, so but, you, so, yeah, go ahead. And, then, and but one final reason is that, unfortunately, physicians and surgeons practice defensive medicine in this country. It's more so than ever. And by practicing defensive medicine, you order more tests, you find more things on people that have to be worked up. Some ultimately need an operation to be worked up to make sure it's nothing bad, but the fact that defensive medicine is being practiced uh, in this country for a variety of reasons as well. Uh, it, it's leading to these unnecessary procedures. All right, and it's leading to this $150 billion a year. Okay, so you've mentioned three things. We, we are doing all the surgery on the, we're doing surgery on the elderly at end-of-life kinds of surgery that uh, are not necessarily necessary, defensive medicine, and it's a multi-billion-dollar-year business. I think, you know, as a consumer or as a patient, we don't really like to think of our, you know, that it's a business that that medicine is a business. Uh, you know, you want to think it that it's it's a caring profession, and you know, your doctor's there to take care of you, and he's going to make the he or, she or she's going to make the best decision about whether or not you need surgery. But if it's motivated by how much money they're going to make, how are we going to, you know? It seems to me. Uh, the whole, and that's inherent in the system. How do you change that? 
Well, I, I still believe physicians today uh, do what do what they do for the best of the patient. Uh, the majority of physicians, most that I know, are very ethical people, and, and they will do what's best for the patient regardless of the business aspect. But there is no time in our history now that decisions about our health care and how it's delivered are being influenced by business pressures, by financial pressures, by cost-cutting, by hospitals trying to gain market share. Uh, there are business decisions that are directly influencing who we see as a primary care, who we ref- get referred to as a surgeon. So there's a lot of pressure on physicians to abide by those decisions, to become part of a bigger system and, and basically refer patients to, pay- to physicians in that system. Now, how do we change this? Well, that's a good question. I, I mean, the Affordable Care Act has tried to change this uh, on several levels. I don't know how that's going to end up personally. Uh, there are some good and bad things to that act. But uh, we need more transparency, first of all, in, in pricing, in hospital pricing, so patients can get an idea, first of all, what their operation may cost at their local hospital and compare it to another local hospital. We have no price transparency at all in hospital charges. Hospitals charge whatever they want for an operation. And insurance companies pay whatever they pay, and, and patients have no idea what those numbers are and what's the reason behind it. There's, there's really is no reasoning behind it. So why don't we? Why isn't there transparency? Don't we have to go to the root of the problem? I mean, why don't we have that information? Why isn't that made available to us? Well, it's because As, hospitals really have never been forced to divulge that information. They, hospitals for decades have, have really been shielded from market forces, from a competitive market forces. They've never had to divulge that information. Uh, the federal government has never forced them to divulge information. And but, uh, the Affordable Care Act is starting to crack that nut and starting to do that. Uh, and so that's a good thing. But for decades, insurance companies have never really forced hospitals to divulge what they charge patients. And hospitals never volunteer that information. They don't want to. Obviously. All right. Well, well, what about this, doctor? Because let's say I need a, a, you know, surgery. I need my appendix out. It'll take something very simple, or you can give an example from your book. But uh, I, as a consumer, one hospital says it's going to cost fifty thousand dollars, and another one says twenty five thousand dollars. How do I know how, how that's going to affect my care? I mean, if I go to buy a dress in the store, I know a good quality silk from a sure. poor quality muslin, and I know what I'm, uh, you know, cotton. So, but I don't know what that means in terms of the care or the quality of the surgical procedure that I'm going to get. So, how it has to make sense, doesn't it, to the patient? Oh, no, no question. That's a great point. The, right now, patients do not what they, they don't know what they're getting for their money. First of all, because uh, what hospitals charge and what surgeons perform, their procedures, their outcomes are not linked to reimbursement. I, I operate on somebody, I get paid regardless of the outcome. Hospitals charge patients for an operation regardless of their outcome. Right now, there's no linkage of quality to cost, uh, but that's changing. Again, that's all changing because we've reached a critical mass, and we need transparency on all levels. We, we don't have that. We haven't had it. I mean, the hospital medical complex system is a, is a huge uh, system that's going to take a while to change. Well, how do you know, And getting back to, let's say if I go to one of the big medical, uh, one of the hospitals, one of the top five hospitals in the country, let's say uh, Johns Hopkins, and I'm going to get a surgery, and do they charge more because they're a top medical facility than, say, my local hospital, or, do, or how does that work? Yes, they do. I, I practice in southeastern Massachusetts. Uh, there are hospitals an hour away. Surgeons up there who can do the same operation that I do, regardless of the outcome, and they will get paid 20 to 30 percent more. Uh, again, regardless of the outcome, uh, and it's all because of the contracts they negotiated with insurance companies, the clout the bigger systems have to, to negotiate these contracts. So I'm sure John Hopkins will get paid more for your gallbladder surgery, for your joint replacement, than your local community hospital, regardless of the outcome. Again. Well, are you just paying for the surgeon or are you paying for the quality of care? Because after surgery is almost as important as the surger- surgical procedure itself, is it, right? The nursing care, the quality, you know, uh, the, the quality care that the hospital itself provides. So are you paying for that? Is that included or is the surgery, you, you know what I'm saying, you know the, what I'm trying to ask you? Sure, sure. Yeah. I, I, that is, I think that is part of it. That's why these bigger systems like a Hopkins, like a... Uh, 
uh, breaking the women's mass general, can negotiate better contracts. Uh, however, how does a patient evaluate that quality? Uh, how can a patient, before they enter John Hopkins or before they enter the hospital that they operate on, know what the outcomes of that surgeon uh, are or what the hospital's outcomes are before entering that hospital? Because if they did and if the outcomes were the same and, and I performed a cheaper service for the same quality, where would patients go? Uh, yeah, where would they go? I mean, you, you tend to, I guess it depends on the surgery or the type of surgery or the reason for your having the surgery. I guess it, I mean, if you're going to go to Sloan Kettering, that's the number one cancer hospital. So I mm-hmm. suppose, you know, so there are different mo- I, different motivations for going to different hospital facilities. Give us some examples in your book. Um, regarding, regarding what, Catherine? Uh, give us examples of, I mean, in the book, uh, personal stories uh, related to uh, the cost of medical care sure. or the cost of care in the hospitals. Yeah. Oh, uh, no question. It's a, it's a chapter called Sticker Shock. Uh, I talk about a patient of mine who had a laparoscopic hernia repaired by me uh, at a hospital. Uh, he was in the hospital three hours, and uh, I saw him in follow-up, and he got a bill, and he had no idea what, that a hernia operation in three hours would cost seventeen thousand plus dollars. Would charge the hospital would charge that. That's not what they get paid. Uh, so I asked him to get an itemized bill, and they gave him reluctantly an itemized bill. And he looked at all the charges. Uh, for instance, they charge you for oxygen for five minutes. They charge you for setting up the operating room before you're even in the operating room. They charge you for using the recovery room. Uh, they bury a lot of charges under a lot of titles, uh, and this. A patient of mine had a, a neighbor who had his operation done at an independent freestanding surgery center, and the charges were around $4,000, markedly less than what a hospital charges. And he got the same quality of care, the same outcome. Uh, there, are, there are examples like that everywhere in this country going on, uh, that patients can get the same quality of care for a cheaper price at their local hospital for many uh, many of the common procedures that are done in this country. Now, for advanced cases, like you said, like Sloan Kettering, uh, that's, that's a different story. People have a specific rare type of problem or need a complex operation that's not done at your local hospital. You're definitely paying for quality when you go to uh, bigger institutions. But that's just one example. And another example is a patient of mine that I saw after he was operated on three times by another surgeon when he was operating on, he had private health insurance. So that surgeon got paid well. And then he lost his job and ended up having Medicaid. And that surgeon would not see him again for a, for a fourth problem that he created. So I had to see that patient. It's just medicine. The bottom line, medicine is a business, unfortunately. It is. And hospitals run it as a business now more so than ever. And physicians have to look at it as a business because they're getting affected daily by it. Yeah, well, it's interesting. So if we can establish that it is a business, and we're talking to Dr. Paul Rajari, the cost of cutting a surgeon reveals the truth behind a multi-billion dollar industry. If it is a business, like then like any business, whether you're buying something in retail, you're buying a car, you're buying a house, you really do, you wouldn't buy a house and not know how much it's going to cost you or what the mortgage is going to be. So I guess, exactly, it, exactly. yeah. It uh, definitely it would it would so it's now it applies to what well, we're talking about our surgical procedures. Let's talk about Joan Rivers uh, and sure. her debt. Yeah, because that's current. Uh-huh. And uh, you mentioned uh, uh, doing surgeries not necessarily in hospital, but at these mm-hmm. uh, outpatient facilities uh, and sure. doing it in this. Okay, uh, was her? Let's okay. I want to hear your take on what happened to her. I mean, should she have been in a hospital? She's 81 years, she was 81 years old. Uh, so should this kind of surgery be done on an outpatient basis with an elderly patient? Well, in retrospect, obviously, her case, it shouldn't have been done. But uh, again, I know the specifics. I only know what the public knows. But there is a lot of outpatient surgery done on elderly patients. Uh, and the vast majority of it is appropriate. And it's really up to the surgeon to decide if that patient is appropriate to do it in an outpatient setting. Uh, it's, really, it's up to the surgeon and the anesthesiologist. If, if it's too risky an operation, if that patient has some underlying problems that could uh, cause a complication afterwards that need to be closely watched, they just need to decide to do that at a hospital. Uh, in, in Joan's case, uh, I'm not sure what was done and what transpired there, but obviously the resuscitation was a problem with her. Uh, I, I don't know if they had 
the facilities to resuscitate her adequately enough because by the time she got to the hospital, she was obviously brain dead. Um, but elderly people are at risk in general for any operation, regardless of how minor, whether it's just a regular colonoscopy or a, a hernia repair, and the majority of that is due to the anesthesia. Anesthesia is a, a risk factor when patients are older. They're very sensitive to anesthesia. And, uh, and well, what's considered uh, older? What's considered elderly? I mean, because now they kind of have two categories of elderly. There's the young elderly, 65 yes. to what, <laughs> 75, or I don't know, the baby boomer type elderly? Or sure. What are the categories yeah, of elderly? Yeah. Yeah, that's shifting. That's that's an interesting point. That, that's kind of shifting. When I, talk, when I speak of elderly, I'm speaking of patients in their 80s. Uh, early 80s, maybe late 70s, but I, I'm operating on a lot of patients in their early 80s, even in their 90s, uh, who are relatively healthy and tolerated well. Uh, but, you know, patients 65, 70, 75, I don't, you know, a lot of those patients are relatively healthy and can be operated on anywhere, at a surgery center or a hospital. But it's ultimately at the, at the judgment of the surgeon and the anesthesiologist at that surgery center to decide if it's appropriate. They're, well, they're John really Rivers... Well, I would think Joan Rivers wasn't operated in, on an outpatient basis. Financial concerns were not the issue, I would assume. But let me ask you, at 81 years old, would you have surgery on an outpatient basis or would you go to a hospital? Because when I read it, I thought if I were 81, I would do it in a hospital, no matter what they said. Yeah, you know, that's a good, that's a good question. And I bet in Joan Rivers' case, uh, surgery centers are more private. Uh, hospitals are bigger institutions. There's more people. Obviously, she's a celebrity. She wanted more privacy. Uh, they're more personable. And many of them have state-of-the-art facilities. In New York City, uh, you know, I don't know what this facility had, but I'm assuming it, it would have had state-of-the-art facilities. Um, but depending on, depending on the procedure, first of all, depending on the anesthesia, and, and if I had some underlying heart issues or other issues, which I don't know if Joan Rivers had, you know, I would err on the side of caution, obviously. If there was a reason why I would have to stay overnight, I would do it at a hospital. So what questions should patients, should we ask as patients, and I'm calling us consumers, uh, what questions should we ask to make sure that we get the best care in the safest location? Well, I would start asking questions to my primary care doctor because he or she is the one that's going to refer you, first of all, to a surgeon. Uh, and I would ask that primary care doctor, why are you referring me to this specific surgeon? You have, you know of good outcomes of this surgeon. You have a good working relationship. You know his patients are satisfied. Or are you just referring me because he's in your network, he's under, in your hospital system, and this is what you do? Uh, and then once you get to a surgeon's office, you kinda, I would do some research before you get to that surgeon's office on what your problem is. If you have a gallbladder issue, gallstones, you need your gallbladder removed, you know, read up a, a little bit about it. Internet's... Now, it can be a dangerous thing, but it also can, uh, it's a place for patients to start reading about their problem. And then when you get to a surgeon, you really have to ask some specific pointed questions. How often do you do this operation a week, a month? How many of these do you do a year? Um, are you the one doing the surgery? Uh, are, are, you know, what is the main complication of this operation, and how do you deal with it? Uh, they're really pointed questions you can ask your surgeon to get an idea of the experience of that surgeon. Because the, the literature clearly states, high-volume surgeons are surgeons who do operations frequently. They have better outcomes, uh, less complications, and just patients do better overall. And you need to find that out. The only way to find that out, unfortunately, is to ask directly to your surgeon certain questions. Well, isn't that true of anything? And I mean, you're a better musician if you practice every day, not once a month, or a better athlete if you are also being practiced, uh, do it every day. So, I, get, I mean, it would make sense that it would be the same in terms of doing surgery, right? But then, yeah. That's true. But it gets back to your, I think, first point, transparency, transparency, transparency. But how, I think you're talking about it behooves the the patient to make sure they have all this information and to ask the right questions. Of course, by the time they're at the point where they're going to have to have surgery, you feel pretty vulnerable and scared and and probably don't have a lot of <clears throat> this energy. So it's not the best place to be in having to do all this research and ask the questions at that point. It would seem no, to me right. there should be some, and I know there are books, and I've interviewed some doctors who have come out with books about, you know, actual putting together the questions to ask. So you have it available. You know what I mean? So it's just a matter of you don't have to, you don't have as a patient think about, well, what kinds of questions do I need to ask the doctor? But 
it should be something that they have at the doctor's office, maybe at your primary care physician here. Here's what you should be asking the surgeon if before you have point. this. Yeah, yeah that, that's a great point. I, I think it starts with your primary care uh, because your primary care is the one dictating who you see today. Uh, and they're responsible for your care and, 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 and transferring you to a surgeon. So it's, the patient, too, has to be more active uh, before coming into a surgeon's office. Elective surgery, they have time to do that. Emergency surgery, like your appendicitis, that's a little different story. You don't have time to research who's going to operate on you or what hospital you're going to be at. Uh, but elective surgery, you have time to a- ask some questions and see what kind of answers you get. Would you ask the hospital, you know, before the fact, like, what are you char- What are you going to charge me for? I mean, a box of Kleenex, is that going to be $20 or, you know, whatever? You gave a lot of, ex- several examples of things that uh, uh, a patient who had surgery really didn't understand in terms of what would have to be paid for. Like, should there be a whole list, something they present to you? I mean, like they present the HIPAA laws or whatever. Well, how, as part of all of that information, this is what we're going to charge you for when you have your surgery. We may call in a consulting surgeon. That was the, getting back, referring mm-hmm. to the article in the New York Times. It said they call in surgeons just to make, could you explain that? They call somebody in, they pay the surgeon. What is this, a consultant during your surgery? And then everybody makes money off of this? Yeah, that was, that's, that's a unique situation. Neurosurgery, spine surgery is a unique uh, specialty where this occurs. It just doesn't occur in a lot of other surgical specialists like myself. Uh, but that, that and I read that, and I just kind of shook my head. I, I had no idea if the patient knew that. Obviously, the patient did not know that surgeon. But with neurosurgeons and spinal surgery, uh, that happens. It, it does happen, and you get charged. And patients should know this before they enter the operating room. Will there be another surgeon involved? And what's, what's the uh, involvement of that surgeon in, my, in that operation? Uh, but they don't know that today, and many doctors, really, many surgeons don't relay that information to patients. Now, if, if a surgeon says he or she is going to be the one operating only, and then there's a problem and you need to call in somebody, that's a different story. Uh, that's kind of a semi-emergency, and then you find that out after the fact, uh, that whoever that surgeon called in to help him or her. But the one, uh, the story in the New York Times really uh, was an eye-opener, I think, for a lot of people. What about a website that patients could go to that sort of covers all of the things we've been talking about, uh, you know, during this interview, where that information is, yeah. Yeah, there are generic websites out there that give you an idea of what, for instance, a knee operation would cost. There's something called bundle payments that's coming down the pike, and it's basically one lump sum payment, for instance, for a hip replacement that Medicare, the government, or private payers will pay a hospital. Like, this is what we're going to give you for this operation, and that's it. No more. And, and hospitals should offer that bundled charge to patients. You can probably get some hospitals to give you a bundled charge. They'll give you an overall charge. They're not going to break it down. Uh, but many hospitals won't even give you that. Um, there, there, really, there, are, there are websites that you can go to that give you generic prices throughout the regions of the country of what your joint replacement is going to cost, what your colonoscopy is going to cost. But really... There isn't anything specific in, to your community, for instance, if you have three hospitals in your community to compare what your colonoscopy is going to cost at each hospital. There, there really isn't at this point yet, but that's coming. All right, so we, we need more sophisticated websites, but this is kind of, you're talking about generic ones. Do you know what they are offhand that we can, you can tell well, us what they are? Healthcareblue.com. Uh, if, if you really just Google healthcare costs, uh, and they will come up pretty quickly. The different websites, uh, again, you have to kind of take with a grain of salt because some of them give prices with a big range, uh, like anywhere from five to $20,000 for a hernia repair. Uh, it'll kind of give you a range of what it may cost you, uh, but it, it doesn't really get specific to your community. Okay, so that is kind of general. So we do, if in order to be transparent, I guess we need the, the much more specificity. Uh, from the hospitals, from the doctors. Uh, you know, we only have a couple minutes left, so wh- wh- what do you suggest for consumers? Where, Besides reading your book, The Cost of Cutting, A Surgeon Reveals the Truth Behind a Multi-Billion Dollar Industry, uh, what else can we do? What else should we be doing to 
you know, address the issues that you talk about in the book in this hundred, and I keep going back to the number, $150 billion per year for unnecessary surgeries. Um, yeah, I mean, the cost of surgery today is at least four or five times that in this country. So surgery is an expensive proposition. Uh, and as the federal government looks for places to save money, they got to go to the most expensive component that they're paying for, and that's surgical procedures. But in the end, patients are paying more for their health care today with higher deductible plans, so they're starting to feel it in their wallet. And they need to be more active before they enter an operating room and calling up their hospitals and calling up their insurance company, for instance, before you're going to have some elective procedure and say, what is this going to cost me out of pocket? What is, going to cost, what is this hospital going to charge you? And see if you get an answer that way. Uh, and then, you know, patients just be more, be more active in asking the surgeon questions about the experience of that surgeon. Yeah, I think pa- patients have to feel comfortable if they're going to be what they may think that they are challenging the surgeon, that, he, you know, you're going to be under the knife with him or her, and uh, do I want to challenge this person? I want them to be on my team. So it, it kind of presents a little bit of a, diff- a problem in terms of the relationship, or it can be perceived as an issue by the patient. It is a problem, uh, but, you know, uh, I don't buy it because uh, if surgeons are reluctant to talk about this, and they're going to have to talk about this. They're going to be forced to talk about this with their patients. It's going to be part of their care. It will be. Uh, then I would find another surgeon. But patients do have to get over uh, that mystique about their surgeon, about challenging their surgeon. Uh, uh, most surgeons I work with are very open to uh, uh, questions, and they really have... Uh, no bad feelings towards it. You shouldn't be. I, I don't buy it. I really don't understand that at all. Uh, I mean, patients are the one directly affected by the health care, and they need to be part of the decision-making. And uh, they are. They will be. It's, it's bec- things are becoming more transparent. There's more dialogue now than there ever was before. Uh, but we need much more improvement, obviously. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, well, patients and all of us as consumers have a lot more information uh, about what goes wrong and what goes right because we have, because of the internet. So, you know, patients go, just automatically are more informed when they go to a physician. And I think that whole godlike thing is kind of, it doesn't exist too much anymore. Or um, I, I agree. I agree with that, Kev. Yeah. So do you have a website? Um, that I we do, can, yes. Yeah, Okay. It's www.paulrogeri.com. The book is available on, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere, any bookstore, really. Um. Great. It's been great talking to you today. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, thanks so much for being on the show. The Cost of Cutting, a Surgeon Reveals the Truth Behind a Multi-Billion Dollar Industry, Dr. Paul Ruggieri. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv. Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. 
It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Mitzi Weinman. She is the founder of Time Finder. And her new book is It's About Time, From Chaos to Calm. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Mitzi. Thank you, Catherine, for having me on your show. Okay. Well, From Chaos to Calm. I don't know anybody who doesn't want to go from chaos to calm, including myself. Uh, And you're obviously an expert in this. You're a coach, a workshop leader, professional speaker, help people develop good habits and techniques to reduce stress and to become more organized, reduce stress, and boost productivity, which I think is uh, a real challenge today. Uh, The myth of time management. What is the myth of time management? What are we talking about when we're talking? Why is there, what, what kind of a myth is associated with time management? Well, that's the myth, time management. Thinking that you can manage time. Time cannot be managed. So when you're trying to manage something that can't be managed, it's an uphill battle. You can't slow time down. You can't speed it up. And you certainly can't stop it. So when you start to think in terms of your time, switch the thinking a little bit to how do you self-manage? It's really your self-management. How do you approach situations? And how do you respond to things? And so what you're really looking at doing is managing yourself. And when I've had clients switch that thinking, and it, it kind of is a, there's a light bulb that goes off like, okay, I'm really more in control, and I can make and take different steps and approaches to things to either make me more productive or to reduce how I'm being interrupted from things that are going on. So it's really all about self-management, not time management. Okay, self-management, not time management. Because I think one of the things that you say is that each one of us has the same 24 hours a day. We're not going to get 25 hours in a day, and we're not going to get 23, right? It's always the same. So we have to manage ourselves within the context of that time. It is, that we, we all have that same 24 hours. But some of us, when you look, you see people who are truly productive. They're really focused. They're getting the things done that they want to do. They're actually having time to relax and enjoy themselves and be in the moment. And then you see other people who seem to be just struggling along. They're just rushing around. They're, they're pulling their kids here and there. They're just kind of going in a lot of different directions. They're, they're double booking themselves into meetings or they're going from one meeting to another to another without a time for taking a breath and so there's there is so many extremes however we all still do have that same 24 hours and it's looking at how can I take the 24 hours I have and what can I do differently than I'm doing now so that I can feel that I am looking I am in more control of what I am doing can we backtrack a little? What, Bitsy, why do you think people do that? Because when you're describing there are those people who accomplish a lot in the 24 hours and those who don't and get really stressed out, um, there are, to me, there are, very, there are a, lot, a lot less people that I know in my realm, work, family, friends, who are able to really accomplish what you're talking about in a, in a very productive way in 24 hours and not get stressed out. So... How, 
you know, I guess obviously we want to learn from those people, which is what you talk about in your book. Right. So it's it's really, there are several things that folks can do. One is, it's to really plan. It's to really think through what it is that you need to accomplish in a day, but not just in the day, but looking ahead in time to the next day, to throughout the week, to see what's coming up. That's why um, my my book is an A to Z book. So it's taking from A, looking to Z. So one of the first chapters in the book is on anticipation. And I think that anticipation is really such a key skill that folks don't really take advantage of. When I do workshops, I actually carry a crystal ball around with me. And I, I suggest to everyone, you can be a fortune teller. You can see the future. You just have to take a look. And what I mean by that is that you can anticipate, for example, traffic that is going to happen. So making sure that you're leaving yourself enough time because you're anticipating that you're going to run into traffic or if there's some construction in your area, that that's going to impede your ability to get someplace when you want to get there. You can anticipate before you go on vacation that you need to get people up to speed with the work that you need them to be doing while you're away or to be aware of, and you don't want to necessarily wait till that very last minute to do that. And so you start planning and getting somebody integrated into your work, you know, days or a week or even maybe two weeks before you're going on vacation. And so when you come back from vacation, you can anticipate that you're going to have been bombarded with emails, even if you've checked them during your vacation. And so you want to make sure that you're not scheduled into any meetings upon your return because you need that time to really just regroup with yourself. That sounds, that's a framework. And I, and I, to me, that seems like that's a really good place to start. But what happens when you do that? I mean, you can anticipate, as you say, you have a, a meeting to go to, how, what the traffic is going to be. Uh, you know, you anticipate what the work that needs to be done while you're away on vacation. But what about the zingers that happen? Because that's what seems to get people off balance. Uh, you know, th- there are other things that come into play that you can't anticipate. So let's say you anticipate, I'm just going to throw, you know, 80% of the time you're able to anticipate what's going to happen in a certain situation. But what do you do for the other 15% when something happens and then it throws everything off? Well, one of the things you need to do is you need to stop and take a deep breath and really look at what what that zinger might be. So if all of a sudden you've got um, a child sick and you've got a big meeting coming up, and so not to go back to the anticipation, but you can have plans in place to deal with when, you, when you're going to have a sick child. You've got some um, contingencies in place. However, what you're talking about is the day-to-day things that come up, those unexpected things that really kind of can put a real monkey wrench into your day. And it's looking at really, is this something that you need to deal with right now? Is this something that can wait for a half an hour, an hour before I need to just kind of jump into it? But the better you plan your day and look at what it is that you're going to need to do, the better you have the ability to move things around and strategize that, you know, if this really isn't going to need to be done today, I can do this tomorrow. This can be done two days from now. It doesn't necessarily have to be done today. Many times what I find that people do is they overplan their day in that they make wish lists of things that they, you know, it's kind of like the dumping ground of the to-do lists. And they've got so many things on that list that it's impossible to get to those. So making your day more focused by looking at what is it that you absolutely need to be doing today really helps to when those unexpected happen. I think it's Henry Kissinger said something like, um, there can't be any crisis today. My schedule is already full. And those unexpecteds, when I, you ask people, well, when do those unexpecteds happen? They say like every day. So you actually have to expect those unexpecteds every day and not have your day filled with nine or nine hours worth of work, but leaving yourself some white space 
to be able to have and know that those things are going to come up in your day. And it might sound sort of a little bit idealistic, but when you start leaving that white space, it really makes a difference in that you've got more flexibility in your day. And that's what you really need to have is some of that flexibility. But when you're so, so booked um, and there's, there's no room for, for kind of something to come up, that's when you're going to get more stressed. Yeah, and also it sounds like then you're also setting yourself up for unrealistic expectations, which can drive one crazy. I mean, you you if you expect things to go in a certain way all the time, and then they don't, and you're not prepared, as you say, with the contingency, then that leads to chaos, or at least leads to you know a lot of stress in one's life. It's sort of like I'm as I'm listening to you. I, I think that's a great idea. I mean, expect things to go wrong, but then have contingency plans for what you would do if they do go wrong, like take a deep breath. You struck something that I have an issue with is I sometimes tend to think something has to be attended to immediately. It doesn't. Take a deep, maybe I can do it tomorrow. Maybe I can put it off. I don't necessarily have to attend to whatever this zinger is at the moment. I think that's really important. Kind of like money. I mean, people who are like right on the edge, every dime is accounted for and then something happens and there's no leeway there's nothing there's no cushion so in the same way that you might have a cushion with your finances it's the same way for handling your life in a way that doesn't lead to chaos does that is that a good it's example? a great analogy yeah. it's like having yeah. a time bank so to speak yeah but, and it's really is having that cushion I know a lot of people say you know when you're when you're really organized you're so inflexible and I think that the more organized you are, actually, the more flexibility you have because then you're not running up against a lot of time walls with deadlines and that you've got the flexibility to be able to maneuver things around. One of the things I suggest is if you're making your to-do list and you're looking at it, making it realistic um, and not thinking, oh, if I hope I can get this done um, because you don't want to come in in the morning and say, oh, my gosh. I don't think I'll get half of these things done because you're already defeated before you've even started. Your energy is, is drained. But that you look at your list and you say, okay, which things do I not have to do today? You know, you prioritize your list by asking, you know, if I'm only allowed to do one thing today, what would that one thing be? And then you go through your list after you've done one of the, that one thing, what would be the next thing? But the flip side is to look at your list and say, all right, if, if there's something that has give today, which thing can I move to another day? Or which two things can I move to another day? Because it takes a weight off of your shoulders to think that you have to get all of that done. And it's really being honest with yourself because you really do only have a certain amount of time and energy in your day. So you've got to be realistic. And if you're living in a time-ideal world, you are just going to keep being more tightly wound and more stressed. And just for anyone who's joining us, Mitzi Weinman is founder of Time Finder, and we're talking about her book, It's About Time, From Chaos to Calm. Uh, Another thing, we're still on A, and it goes to A to Z, so people have to buy the book because <laughs> we only have. A, <laughs> so that's good. But some of the tips, and one of the tips you said is, and I really identified with this one: saying no or saying yes. I say yes to too many things, and then I'm really sorry. Uh, I instead of just telling someone I'm going to think about it or I'll talk to them tomorrow, I'll, I'll say yes too soon, and then hang up from the phone conversation or leave the meeting and think, why did I say yes? I can't do it. I don't want to do it. Or I'd like to do something less. So that's a critical point that saying no, um, I think uh, one of the things, you know, the, what you, uh, I, so let, can we talk about that? I mean, because that's not easy to do. No, we can't talk about that. No, of course we can. <laughs> that's, that's chapter and no. And no is a really powerful word. And people become very uncomfortable saying it because they don't want to be seen as the bad guy or not the team player or disappointing somebody. So people end up saying yes. And then they have what you just said. They have the regret. They walk away and say, oh, my gosh, what did I just say yes to? I don't really want to do this. And they get kind of pulled in and sucked in because of, of an emotional piece of wanting to to help somebody. And um, 
one of the things is before you say yes or no is to really think about is this something that I want to do? Is this something that fits into my priorities or or is it going to take me away from those things that are important to me? Do I really know what's being asked of me? So sometimes it's asking good questions, similar to your doctor before, making sure you're asking really good questions about really what those expectations are of you. Um, You want to be able to figure out, are you doing it from an emotional place or is it something that you're really passionate about? If it's something that you're doing just because you're feeling an obligation to it, it's probably something you should not say yes to, Um, but to think it through. So one of the things or a couple of things to do is to, again, take a step back and breathe. Think about what it is, if it's something that you really do want to do. If it's not, you can say to somebody in a positive way, I call it saying a positive yes, is you thank them for the opportunity. It's just not a great time. Please, you know, come back and ask me again when you've got another project or something that that you have going on. Um, Just, you know, feel free to to come back to me and get back to me. Um, One of the things that you can do is to say, I can't do this whole thing you're asking me to do, but I could do a small piece. So let's figure out which small piece I could do. Another thing that you can do is suggest somebody else who might be better at what it is than you might be. Now, this, the caveat here, it, the whole thing is that if this is something that you're obligated to do because of your work and you're going to be measured on your performance evaluation, you probably should not say no to it if your manager is coming to you or his manager is coming to him or her and asking you. But so this may not be that. It may be, hey, somebody wants you to sit on another board or go to another. Exactly. That kind of thing. And I think sometimes people play off of your maybe narcissistic feelings, not necessarily that you're going to be helping somebody, but that you're the super person, the superwoman or the superman. And wow, this is like, you're fantastic. And, and so it play to gets, your ego. Pay to, yes, play to your ego. Uh, and one of the things that you say is don't tell someone that you're too busy. It seems to me I'm always doing that. And that that's not effective. Why? Well, saying that you're too busy, really, it doesn't send a really positive, I mean, I know you're saying no, but really what you, you don't want to just say to somebody, I'm just too busy, because we are really all too busy, and, and that just kind of, it kind of is a sharp, it just kind of hits wrong. It just it hits, it hits somebody the wrong way, because somebody's saying, well, I'm volunteering to do this, and I'm finding the time, why can't you do this? So one of the things is you you have to be really clear on your no, and you don't want to make excuses for it, including I'm too busy. You don't want to say, well, I've got this going on and that, and you know I've got this committee and I've got these meetings. You don't want to do that either, um, because somebody can figure a way to manipulate that as well. So you want to just say, you know, it's really just not a great time, but thank you so much for thinking of me. Be short, sweet. And, and kind. How did you come to this? I, I mean, you're the founder, and I'm going to mention again of Time Finder, which is your business, which offers advice to personal productivity. Uh, besides, obviously, now you've written your book, it's about time from chaos to calm, A to Z. I want to mention that again. How did you come? Where, is this a personal, was this a personal uh, chaos that you were experiencing? And, and so you... You know, how did this, your business, first of all, how did you, why did you start it? What motivated you? Uh, Or, and can you, not, we only have a few minutes left, but I'm really curious as to how all this began with you personally. So personally, when I was growing up, I was not the neatest of children. And um, my father, he's passed on, but he, he put a sign on my bedroom door. And it read, cleanliness is next to godliness. Welcome to the gates of hell. (laughs) He had a great sense of humor. And what he saw was that my room was a disaster. But more, more importantly, in a sense, was my ability to procrastinate tremendously through school. Um, And that really caused an awful lot of stress. It made me go into classrooms with my head down. 
and I didn't want to be called on. I was seen as kind of a shy person. I wasn't seen as somebody outgoing or, um, and, but I always had my head down and, um, it was it was a problem. It's not good to wait till the last minute to feel unprepared when you're going into into your classes. And then I went to college, and I had a clean dorm, you know, an empty room except for a roommate. And it was I didn't have to bring a lot of my stuff. I couldn't bring a lot of my stuff. I was going from outside of Boston to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and um, I needed to. Dreamline, and I got a fresh start. And I thought, wow, fresh start, no clutter, no mess, no sloppiness, hang up your clothes. And I just approach my schoolwork in the same way. You get the syllabus, take advantage of knowing what's coming down the road, what's going to be asked of, you know, what was going to be asked of me. And it became something that um, not being really... Um, inflexible, but being or rigid, I was able to get through my schoolwork in a much more positive way, and it, it really energized me in such a way. But forward through, I was working for, at a, at a point in my career, I was working for the Chicago um, Times. And, we have 30 seconds left. Okay. And they eliminated my job, and a friend of mine needed help getting organized, and I said, I can do that, and I started organizing a friend of mine in real estate, and that's how I started. I just So it just totally, it, it, it evolved. It was an evolution, starting, I guess, from your father talking about <laughs> cleanliness is next to godliness. It um, was. It was, it was yeah. a great evolution, because I like to impart that on the people who I work with, um, who listen to me speak, you know, when I, when I speak, as well as hopefully people who read the book because it's filled with next steps at the end of each chapter. And it's, uh, now we have to say goodbye. And I mentioned the book again because you can buy it at bookstores everywhere. It's about time from chaos to calm, A to Z. We covered A. Now you got to read the book and go to Z. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Mitzi. Thank you so much, Catherine. Mitzi Weinman, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.